Drew Balfour, the Cuban Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his fortnightly appearance on the program. It is roughly a fortnightly appearance on the program. He's led prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. It's Eric Longenhagen. Eric Longenhagen is the guest on this edition of the program, as he does roughly every two weeks, nearly every two weeks, almost every two weeks. What Eric Longenhagen does here is to analyze all prospects. Of particular note this week, Eric Longenhagen recalibrates. Last week, Eric Longenhagen submitted a scattering report, but it was a scattering report neither on a top nor a fringe prospect, uh, but rather a two-time Cy Young Award winner, Corey Kluber. Unsurprisingly, Longenhagen thinks that Corey Kluber has a chance to succeed in the major leagues, uh, but this was not the exact purpose of it. The exact purpose, as I say, was for Eric to recalibrate uh, perhaps his expectations of what a pitcher could look like, his understanding of what a major league pitcher could look like, and in this particular case, a very good major league pitcher. Longenhagen discusses how that might help him evaluate other pitchers. Also in the program, three of very possibly the top 10 selections in the 2018 amateur draft have played at some point in Arizona this spring. That is Arizona near Eric Longenhagen's home. Nolan Gorman, the third baseman from an Arizona high school. Matthew Liebertor, a left-handed pitcher from an Arizona high school. And Nick Madrigal, a diminutive second baseman from Oregon State. Longenhagen shares his observations on all three players. And finally, uh, in this program, Longenhagen introduces the concept of reverse projection. Of course, it is not unusual to hear prospect analysts use the term projection, in particular to describe a tall pitcher who is perhaps slight of build. What about reverse projection? Think, for example, of a college-age Steven Strasburg, who arrived on campus overweight, improved his body immensely, and eventually became the top overall pick in the draft. The story for Oakland A's left-hander A.J. Puck is similar, if not to the same degree. It is still similar. These are pitchers who will not grow into their bodies, but who have better bodies somehow hiding inside of them. Reverse projection is how Longenhagen characterizes it, and I believe with an assist from a scout friend of his. There's plenty more than that, but let us move on. Now, uh, it is both my privilege and also my professional obligation to announce that Fangraphs memberships exist. For a reasonable sum, the readers of Fangraphs.com can help support the terrific work that appears in those electronic pages, and for a slightly less reasonable sum, readers can also acquire an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but also liberating one from the tyranny of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership, available only, of course, naturally, obviously, at Fangraphs.com by clicking around a little bit once you're there. Uh, okay, that is complete now as well. Let us move on to our conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Fangraphs lead prospect analyst, Eric Longenhagen. And when does it begin? Right now. I am really impressed by you, Eric. <laughs> That's all I wanted to say. I'm Thank impressed you. by, yeah, I'm impressed by your creativity as a as a prospect analyst. I really am. I enjoy your mind. It's nice to be able to branch out when there's like just having a second person. Like it's just been nice mm-hmm. to be able to think about other stuff. Your brain is free to think about other things mm-hmm. when there's somebody else to share the things with. So uh, yeah, I yeah. got to do some weird stuff last week, which I like typically. Yeah, well, the cool. I mean, <clears throat> Corey Kluber or whatever. Right, right. You wrote, you saw Corey Kluber, and you wrote about him as kind of an exercise. I don't know. It's like not only for readers but yourself to sort of what to kind of reset your parameters. I think maybe. Yeah. Is that, is that one way to say it? Yeah, it's sort of like calibrating, like calibrating. Sorry, what did I say? Reset the parameters. No, I meant recalibrate. That's exactly what I meant. It is good to see big leaguers. Like I tried to do it throughout the season just because the Diamondbacks are right here. Mm. But like the diversity of the guys that you get to see in spring training, if as long as you're considering the context, like it's it it is valuable. So like I saw Corey Kluber and Herman Marquez within two days of each other. And like it's just instructive. Uh and then you go back and look at the years they had last year and you can see what they're working on and sort of anticipate what's going on, especially with like the younger Big leaguers like Marquez or um, you know, I saw Mike Leake last week. Like you just see like, oh, this is how this guy produces this sort of level. And especially really stable big leaguers like Kluber and Leake, you get a really good idea of what 
a guy who performs like those guys do on paper, what they look like in person. I think that Mike Leak, I'm just going to say it. He strikes me as a player who survives on guile. What do you think about that? You think guile is any is part of his toolkit? Uh, yeah, to a degree. Yeah. He's he's one of those guys where, you know, when I say if I'm writing or saying elite athlete, I feel like we tend to think that that's sort of when it applies to pitchers on the mound, the lay person thinks that that's like an explosion thing. Those are like the big, like Michael Kopech, the big armed pitching prospects. But like Leak is one of the best athletes I've ever seen on the mound and throws like 80, 87, 89. <laughs> so it is like an athleticism command attack hitters with this sort of kitchen sink array of mediocre stuff. And he takes the mound every fifth day, and, like, there's value in that. And there's just, like, a whole bunch. He does, like, literally, literally everything but throw hard. And this is what, it, you know, we have, like, a long track record of what that guy does. He also doesn't really throw, uh, at least if his pitch info numbers are correct, and they typically are, uh, Harry Pavlidis et al. do a pretty good job at classifying pitches using both the objective data but also um, adding to it some sort of qualitative, through, through a qualitative lens, I guess. Not only did Mike Leake not throw, he didn't throw any four-seamers last year. He also threw a secondary pitch only like, well, I guess 30% of the time, change-up slider, curveball. But not, he doesn't throw any of them more than 15% of the time. And he throws his fastball a lot. Yeah, I had, uh, just from my notes last week, I had him 87, 89, touching 90. I called the slider a cutter at 86, 87 had better length to it when he located it to his glove side, which is almost universally true for all pitchers. It just allows you to get around the baseball a little bit more when you're locating a horizontally oriented breaking ball to your glove side. Like it just lets you sort of create more length and movement on that pitch. I put a 50 on his curveball, was 77 to 80 miles per hour, and a 50 on his changeup, it was 81, 83. So he's just like a, he's a 40 fastball with a mess of 50s as far as the secondaries go, and he's got, like, plus to plus plus command. And he feels his position excellently. Let me pose this to you. I have recently taken some interest in viticulture. I think it's called viticulture. Maybe it's called oineology. It's it's one of the two, or it's both. It's both regarding wine, essentially. Oh, that's right. Right. Yeah, yeah. And there have been been multiple studies or tests done to assess the effect of uh, packaging or presentation on one's capacity to enjoy a wine or one's, you know, how one tastes the wine, essentially. And it's pretty clear that if one is under the impression that a wine is, you know, objectively, is supposed to be like objectively nice or is expensive, uh, then one is is willing to give that product the benefit of the doubt, okay? And so it's because, so we have the packaging. We have the packaging and then the, from it is the actual like product, in isolation. So I'm I'm wondering if when you were watching, if you were watching Mike Leake, to what degree uh, you are biased already because you know he is a major leaguer who's had some success, and how you attempt, if at all, to combat that th- that bias that you know probably exists. I almost think it's good in this situation. If it's someone who's who's done what Leake has done, which is just be pretty good as a big league starter for as long as he has, mm-hmm. then keeping that in mind as you evaluate him is even if it like sort of biases your opinion is like, I think it's fine to be like, this works, right? You have to sort of figure out, okay, why does this work? Even though this guy throws 87, 89. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's valuable to go in and like run into someone like this and know that going in. Yeah. That's Uh, interesting. Because it forces you to try to figure out why I just have, I have to think, I have to think if if you, now if you saw now he went to Arizona state, right? Mike Leake. Yeah. Yeah. If you went to an Arizona State game, Arizona State game this weekend, right? Mm-hmm. What you do? You do that a lot. Yep. And you know the uh, the opposing pitcher, pitcher on the other team, essentially had leaks stuff. Or you know, if you, if you saw eighty seven, eighty nine, I don't think that that would cause you to put the notebook down. I mean, you've said that that's some there are some certain fastballs essentially where that you're like, yeah, all right, we could take it half an inning off. Mm-hmm. I don't think you'd do that, but I'm wondering, would you be like? Is that would you be if you saw Mike Leake on a college mound? Would you say this is definitely a first round pick? If it was just one look, then no, probably not. This is where it's like valuable, I think, to have a long term relationship with a prospect as a like an area scout. 
If you see Mike Leake in one start, even if his command is surgical, because you spend, if you spend the first two to three innings, like just getting a feel for what all pitches are here and sort of grading out his stuff, and then you head down the line to do open side work to look at his mechanics from like the third baseline and take some video and do this, like you probably don't. You're not dedicating the mental resources to watching him that like would lead you to be confident that, oh, this guy has seven command. That's something that you develop, I think, or at least personally, like I develop with multiple looks at a single guy. Like if I'm going to put a seven on someone's bat or on their command, like something where it really allows the other parts of the profile, that which might be mediocre, to play up and make this guy a big leaguer because, you know, these are two of the most important things for pitchers and hitters respectively like it's going to take some time so if you're a four corners area scout like having a three-year history with leak that gives you the confidence to say this guy's got seven command yeah that's very valuable so if there were and like obviously this prospect is controversial for other reasons or like you could just say he's undraftable for other reasons i think most teams will like luke heimlich the lefty at oregon state who's obviously sort of off most draft boards right now because of sexual impropriety from his youth, which was unearthed before last year's draft. Like when I saw him last year, he was basically 87 to 92, average curveball, average changeup, flashing 55. But like that's a guy who now that I've seen three times over the last two years, if you told me, if you were like a, a Northwest area scout and were like, I got a future seven on his command, like I buy that. Like I've seen what he can do spotting his fastball. So like I get it. But after I saw him once last year, I was like, okay, I think this guy does have good fastball command, but I don't have enough confidence or history with him to like throw a seven on it after just seeing him one time. It's just one of the limitations of like this specific weird job that I have where I do just sort of get these one or two start uh, looks at a lot of guys where it's just, if I'm just personally using my own grades, then it's like hard for me to stick that sort of number on a guy. That is your job. That is your job, Eric. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like it's uh, this weekend, like Oregon comes in here and they've got a, a righty, Matt Mercer, who's who's pretty interesting. And, you know, we'll just see how that goes. Who are the other? Like, I saw TCU again this weekend in Los Angeles. I went to. Yeah, well, to, well, well, let's wait, wait a second. Whoa, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, I'm about to hit it on another dude who it's like, now I've seen this guy a couple times, mm-hmm. and like, maybe he does have like six or better future command. I see what you're. Okay. Yeah. And that's Sean Weimer. Sean Weimer. I will spell that S H. Nope. <laughs> S E A N. Yeah. W H Y M E R. There's just a minus H, but otherwise you're correct. Really? Was a Y there? Is it Y? Yeah. W Y M E R. W Y M E R. Okay. Sean Weimer from attends what university? Texas Christian University. Ooh. So I saw him opening weekend at Grand Canyon, and he was mostly 90, 91 above average change up like I wrote him up for the site you know his secondary stuff was just okay he threw a bunch of strikes missed a bunch of small school bats with his change up and then he came out of the bullpen on Sunday in relief because Saturday's games were rained out so TCU did what I was praying they'd do and just piggyback their Saturday and Sunday starters uh, on Sunday so I could see them both so I saw Nick Lodolo who's like a big 2019 draft name and then Weimer came in and he his stuff was up like he was 92 93 his breaking ball was a 50 55 instead of like a 45 50 and he was locating everything the changeup was still there like he was nails in relief for like multiple innings and so now it's like okay i kind of pegged this guy as a what like a fourth through six rounder the first time i saw him it's a touch and feel righty with mediocre stuff and on my second look Everything's up a half grade, and now I've seen him locate everything for a second start. So maybe it's a bunch of 50s and 55s with 60 command. And, like, that's a league average big league starter. So, like, they're very different. So now it's now I have to sort of double back and combine those two assessments and then do some sourcing as the draft approaches to see what the feel is for this specific guy in the industry and then sort of try to get a feel for 
where he lies from a value perspective. So basically, he sort of moved the needle for me from like, if you want to look at it from the context of the, the prospect lists, like he went from being an honorable mention guy to a 40 future value from one look to the next. And obviously, they have to sort of be married in some way. It's almost like you see two subtly different players. Yeah, you, it sounds like you have to employ your faculty of judgment is to me, Eric. Yeah. Yeah. You know, judgment uh, and the faculty... <laughs> The faculty of judgment is a, I feel like it's a overlooked sometimes, you know, I don't know precisely. I'm not going to, you're going to say, could you develop that thought, Carson? And uh, my answer is no. (laughs) Just reporting from the front lines of my, of of, uh, ideas of just ideas that I have fleeting ideas. We're doing it all the time, right? It's just, we're not conscious, like we're not consciously doing it. I feel like, I feel like, I feel like judgment and so let's, let's regard judgment as like a human tool, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like that is maybe commensurate with command as a kind, as like a pitcher's tool. Because you really have to, I feel like you have to get a number of looks as a human observing another human to, like, does this person really exercise good judgment, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like, you know, it's hard, it's hard to know off the top of your head. Limited looks, as it were. Yeah, you did that. You were talking about your Los Angeles trip. I really do want to talk about your Los Angeles trip. It was the second year in a row that I've gone to see Vanderbilt in Cal- in Southern California and had a game rained out. So I'm confident Tim Corbin and I can solve the drought issue in California if we just both <laughs> are constantly there. And your powers, yeah. your powers combined. All right. Well, I was going to see. I was going to ask you this. Can, can I ask you one more question? As yeah. um, about a major league pitcher and how it might information about that major league pitcher might influence how you regard minor leaguers, and that is just very simply, you were talking about Mike Leake and how his fastball velocity is not particularly impressive, and yet he does everything else well, and that's what allows him to to succeed, nearly flourish, definitely you know, have succeed in the majors. Recently, it's been reported that Zach Greinke's velocity is down, right? Oh. And I believe I'm not telling tales out of school. When I say that this has actually been, this has actually happened before, the question of Granke and velocity has arisen before. Uh, of course, he's had good seasons even after concerns regarding his velocity. So, you know, I guess there's some questions to how serious it is. I mean, last year, for example, I think he recorded a fastball that was uh, on average set about a mile per hour less than it had the year before, and he had one of the best seasons of his career, right? So okay. it's not necessarily the most dire of circumstances, but I think he's in the mid-80s essentially right now. He pitched in a B game last week, right? So there might be – someone might have been there. Maybe. I've seen reports of it. But I guess my, I guess my question is how do you contend with that, especially when you're dealing with amateur players? How do you contend with a drop in velocity, an inexplicable drop in velocity? Yeah, so this is one of those things where it's it does – very person to person and org to org. And I think Kylie and I might give two different answers to this. So like, it seems to me that certain teams, especially as it relates to amateur players, are more apt to buy into the direction that velocity is headed as the draft is approaching more than others are. So like, if you're a a high school pitcher from South Florida, uh, or let's just use a real life example. Okay, so Joey Wentz. Joey Wentz, left-handed pitcher that was drafted out of a Kansas high school by the Braves a couple years ago. Wentz, his fastball velocity waxed and waned throughout his entire high school career and even got to the point where, like, he was more or less shut down. Like, he didn't pitch on the showcase circuit as a rising— Wait, I just want to verify. You're saying Wentz's velocity waxed and waned? Yes. Wentz's velocity waxed and waned. I didn't intend it to be alliterative, but that— that's the all the good eats episode episodes I've watched is like sort of I have a proclivity <laughs> for it now. But yeah, so like his velocity was up late. Whence his velocity? Yes. Uh <laughs> like as the draft approached. I think Kylie might have actually even been in to see him in the whatever state playoffs and he shoved. And so like the Braves seem to be one of those teams where if a guy's Ian Anderson is another example of this, where like the stuff was up late ahead of the draft and they seemed more apt to buy in that that was what it was going to be in the future because we are dealing with teenagers who are undergoing physical changes still and so like there's reason to believe that what they show more recently is what they're going to be going forward whereas other orgs might look at the track record of velocity as a whole and sort of mush it all together into one average number 
So for me personally, I'm more apt to do the latter than the former, but there is a philosophical difference, I think, throughout baseball as to how to handle that. I'm looking at Granky's, some Granky stuff right now, actually. I can tell you. Joey Wentz, a product of Shawnee Mission East High School. Yes. And we've, I forget, like, you're about to say Paul Rudd's name in some way, I believe. <laughs> but I, I don't think that Paul Rudd went to Shawnee Mission East. I believe he went to Shawnee Mission West. Can you, you're right, can you hear the garbage truck? <laughs> yeah, I can. In the back alley? Yeah. I can't. No. Uh, <laughs> that's Bye, good. I shot Shawnee, Paul Rudd, Jason Sudeikis, and noted sabermetrician Rob Nyer all attended Shawnee Mission West. All right. John Lear, a star of TV show 10 Items or Less, went to Shawnee Mission West, but former head of the MLBPA, Donald Fear, went to Shawnee Mission East. So, And here's another one for you. Thomas Frank, who founded The Baffler, a uh, progressive publication. He went to Shawnee Mission East, but Ramesh Panaru, senior editor for the National Review, a conservative magazine, went to Shawnee Mission East as well. Interesting. Yeah. Hey, I believe I've got it Granky, was... Just for, so you know, I've got Granky at like 86 to 89, touching okay. 90 in his first spring training start back on the 25th. So that's definitely down. But it was, again, it was it's early spring training. Granky himself, training, right. like the stories about Granky are weird. You yeah. probably are aware of this. <laughs> well, he is a he is a man apart, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are copious, like they really are dating back to his his high school days. It really is like. Well, yeah, I I actually went to an Arizona State game one time. I was with a couple of uh, colleagues from Fangraphs actually, and Zach Grinke was just like two people ahead of us in line. And I remember thinking, like, does he have to wait in line for tickets? But I guess that's true. I don't know. I guess he does. I was like, I feel like he could have done it some other way. But it also seemed very on brand for Zach Greinke to just be waiting in line, being like, yeah, this is what people do. They wait in line. Vontae's Perfect was at the game on Friday night. He is immense. And he Say this person's name again. Vontae's Perfect. Don't you remember 15-yard Perfect? Former Arizona State linebacker who now plays for the Cincinnati Bengals and is like one of the most penalized and fined players in the NFL. I no, I, I'm, I'm not. I think you're more familiar with American football, also, also known as gridiron football, also known as gridiron football. I think you're more well acquainted with it. But I'm willing to believe you, and uh, I will also concede uh, that he's probably large. Oh yeah, except for his ankles, yeah. his little tiny ankles. Right. <laughs> uh, Don't hurt me, perfect. If you hear this, your before, ankles are fine. <laughs> before I turn to the Los Angeles trip. Um, your big road trip. Let me uh, let me finally, because we've we've spoken about a couple of collegiate prospects here. Do you have a Nick Madrigal, Madrigal, Nick Madrigal update, status update? Uh, he's injured. Okay. But I don't have. It sounds like it's going to be like four to six weeks. Okay. You, wrote, um, you recently a wrote fractured. Could a five a foot fractured wrist? Could a five foot eight second baseman be drafted first overall? It's about Nick Madrigal, not comedian. Al Madrigal. Al Madrigal. Yeah. Or Nick. Swartzen, I guess this is close. Yeah, I guess get it's, to it's none of these people. It's Nick Madrigal, uh, but he, uh, you said that he was uh, the best you'd seen in the class until uh, until he got injured. Yeah. So the three guys who I've who I've had the opportunity to have early season looks at are who also sort of projected to be going near the top of uh, the draft were Madrigal, uh, Matthew Libertor, the left-handed pitcher from Mountain Ridge High School here in Arizona, and Nolan Gorman, the third baseman from Santra Day O'Connor High School here in Arizona as well. And Madrigal is just, the, you know, the best of those three guys. And it's just, you know, he's he is 5'8", and he is a buck seventy, Like, he is a little dude. And some scouts and he's have not a problem Jose, with that. As you, I, th- I think, as you note, he's not Jose Altuve little. Yeah, it's like... Yeah. I, I like to denote the difference between short and small. So, like, Altuve is short, but not small. But Nick Madrigal is small. Now, I don't care, but some scouts do. And I get it. And the fact that he fractured his wrist on what was described to me as a relatively innocuous home plate collision is certainly evidence that perhaps at his size, he he is fragile. You know, it is also sort of a freak occurrence. So you can argue both sides of that if you want to. But he does everything, and there are old grizzled scouts who don't care that he's 5'8". He was just off to a raucous start. 
Oregon State plays their first two weekends of the year down here in Arizona for obvious reasons, and everyone gets to see them. So, like, because all the executives are down here for spring training. And he just, he did everything. He There's elite bat control, at least on a college player. He's very athletic and incorporates his entire body into his swing. So there's, there is in-game power there. It's probably like 40 or 45 raw, but because of how reliably he hits, I think he's going to hit for like 45 or 50 game power. Even if it's not like a bunch of home runs, I think there's a ton of doubles and triples in there. And he's a seven runner and you could argue he's a seven defender at second base. You could probably put him at shortstop if you wanted to, but his, what I was most impressed by him over the weekend with the two weekends I saw him was how his pivot at second base, like his actions are so quick that, you know, six, four, three double plays in college are not a given. They look like six, three double plays. That's how quick the pivot is. Yeah. It's, it was pretty ridiculous. So like he yeah. does everything he's polished. Even if you think that because there's not a whole lot of power projection there, that the upside is, you know, somewhat limited if you think he's only a 55 say he's probably going to be a 55 in 18 months and you know the top of the draft class is typically maybe there's a 60 or two a couple 55s and then you end up getting you know after the top five guys you're probably looking at 50 future value types just as far as fan graphs lexicon goes and so no one has really separated themselves at the very top of this draft class yet. And it looked like he was starting to do that and become like a near ready 55. And that's not a crazy thing to go 1-1 by any means. You know, you could argue that Corey Ray was that or, you know, that Mickey Moniak was some facsimile of that, you know, or, or viewed as such on draft day. So, yeah, I thought that there was a non-zero chance that he was separating himself in a way that he was making an argument to go at one. But then you also have to factor in like the Detroit's preferences. And I think that that's probably uh, a reason to say that he wouldn't. Do you know who else is going to be a 55 in 18 months? Do you have someone? Is that a question or are you at, yeah. are you asking? Well, it's, it's someone who's 53 and a half right now. That person's also going to be a 55 in 18 months. I think everyone collectively just turned like, turned this off. <laughs> 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 All right, hey, let's talk about Los Angeles. I called you uh, yesterday, and you were currently leaving Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. You were in a car, and um, we're having a conversation uh, not unlike this one, and I believe I was asking you if you had gone by particular landmarks yet. Yeah, well, as soon as I hung up with you, I, the sign said I was 12 miles west of Redlands. See, that's the sort of exact information that I wanted from you. You were 12 miles west of Redlands, huh? Yeah. What does that drive look like? I, you go. There's some mountains up by like Lake Elsinore or whatever, right? Yeah, Elsinore is further south. Like Elsinore is between LA and San Diego. Okay. The drive is mountainous and then flat. Yeah. Uh, the time of day at which I was driving home, the sun is setting in your rear view mirror in a way that like the the shadows that the mountains cast upon themselves are very long, and there's like a blue tint to the light that sort of fades into orange and pink as the sun sets in a very mm -hmm. pleasing way. As we approached Phoenix, the sun was at such an angle that it was reflecting off of the Phoenix skyline in the distance, and it made them look like giant orange crystals were jutting out of the desert floor, which was super awesome. And it only lasted for like a minute or two because it was like we were just on this perfect spot of the highway, and the sun was hitting the buildings at like this perfect angle that made it look super cool. But yeah, it's like a six-hour drive of mountains and desert, and so you're going. So you were 12 miles west of Redlands when I right. when I was talking to you. When you talked so you, to me, yeah. So you'd probably you had probably gone through like near Ontario and Rancho Cucamonga. Uh, yeah, like those are sort of on the peripherals of the of the trip. Yeah, Bloomington, Colton, these are all towns that I see here. It was very interesting. I stayed in Chinatown, so it was sort of the. It was close because it was close to Dodger Stadium where Sunday's games were. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I drove all the way through to like West LA or anything like that. Like it wasn't no. all the way in Westwood. So I was mostly in like the East End of LA. And what was happening? Was it, was there an event at Dodger Stadium, Eric? Long yeah, ago? that's uh, every year UCLA and USC sort of host this four team round robin tournament. It's not really a tournament. It's just like you know teams come in and play three different teams over three yeah. days. And so UCLA and USC had 
TCU and Vanderbilt come in this year. And it was just an opportunity to get another look at Luke and Baker, who I only saw two games from when he was in Arizona because he got hit in the face with a ball. I saw another player get hit in the face with a ball on Sunday in a way that was much uglier. And like I just wanted to look at Vanderbilt's hitters and hope that I ran into uh, some of their draft-eligible pitchers, uh, which I did. Mm-hmm. They actually have a draft-eligible redshirt freshman. Their closer, Reed Schaller, who had Tommy John and missed 2017. He would have been a draft-eligible sophomore this year, but he missed all of last season with Tommy John. He was like 94 to 98 with a mid-80s, a 55 slider. Wait, uh, sorry, is this a, this is a starting pitcher or a reliever? This is their closer. Okay, all right. Yeah, so it was like weird to see a draft-eligible freshman. So yeah, he was probably the best, like that was the most sort of explosive thing I saw over the weekend. We had rain on Saturday, so like a bunch of, there were no games. But yeah, it was just my first Southern, it's a relatively light high school crop for Southern California this year. So I might go back in if someone like pops up late and I might get in to see Bryce Terang late just to see who's kind of poking around. I've been informed by Kyla McDaniel that it is a banner year for Florida. Yeah, from the Florida talent like that's based in Florida, I'd say it's probably above average to plus. But like everyone that comes into Florida, like Kylie gets to see like Wichita State might have two first round bats, and they randomly make a trip to Orlando, like where Kylie can drive ten minutes and see them. So yeah, like it is it is a good year for high school talent in Florida, and then obviously Shane McClanahan at at USF and the Florida university pitching is good but like also there's just a randomly exceptional group of colleges that have road games in florida that kylie also gets to see the two high school kids that are definitely going in the first round in arizona are the two best kids that have that i've seen here in arizona the last four years since i've since i've lived here jonathan ornelas a shortstop at kellis high school uh here in arizona is also probably going to go in the top three rounds probably so it's a pretty good year for Arizona too. It's just not as as deep. We're both we're both lucky this season. Hey, is one of those players you noted one of the top bats at Wichita State? Is one of them Grayson Janista? Yes, it is. I saw him play this summer uh, on the Cape. Good. What do you think about that? Yeah. Did you take yeah. diligent notes? I remember him being a. I think he, I believe he was playing center field for uh, whichever yeah. team he was he was on. Yeah. I don't know if I took uh, diligent notes. I said, uh, "Hey, look at this! <laughs> look at this guy." That was mostly what it was. I think he was going between uh, first base and center field, which is uh, always something that will catch your eye because uh, that does not happen so frequently. I believe that's like that's like the Will Myers special at this point. If you had to guess based on like in your mind's eye what his what are his height and weight are, what would you say? Oh, okay. Well, I thought he was quite big. Yeah, he's uh, a big dude. So let me see. I'd say six four two ten. How'd I do? Six four two forty. Oh wow! So that's just an indication to me that he carries it well. Like if you're underestimating it, that like it's, it's probably not a bad two forty, is what I'm saying. Yeah, but can we talk about ways in which we're biased? The fact that he's deployed at all in center field it tells me immediately it's like, yeah, how could he be two forty and doing that? That's what I was. Uh, I was intimidated by reality. We can't be intimidated by reality, Eric. Can't be bullied. Can't no, be bullied can't. by the facts. <laughs> it's so difficult to uh, to overcome those. Yeah, I don't know. He looked good. I guess he looked good. He's, he appears to be having a. He's had a good start. Is Alex Baum her Bohm the other guy? Yeah, actually, there's part of me that thinks Bohm. Alex better. Alec Baum or Bohm. Sorry. There's just some of the stuff that I've seen out of Janista for, as far as feel to hit goes has not really impressed me. Whereas. I think Bomb or Bohm is like can really rake. It's just there are questions. What position about him does because uh, he's also play? he's also a monstrous like two hundred and forty pound dude. Yeah. So yeah, I mean we have them both. Uh, I'm, I have our sort of living draft list that Kylie and I keep in a shared document. Safety open right now. Lockbox. B- both these guys sort of in the middle of the first round right now. Scranton. Scranton. Who wants to go to Scranton? That's why you keep it in the loft box. In Scranton. It's just a piece of paper. We've written it out. Scranton's okay. Oh, that's right. You have experience with Scranton. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah. I, was going, I was going right to the source. 
all those like northeastern Pennsylvania towns. Every time I go up there, it's it is very gray. Hmm. I watched the Deer Hunter when I got home from LA last night, mm-hmm. and it is like oh yeah, that's just, as you that's, do. That's Pennsylvania. As you yeah, do. I was just like, well, I've just got done with a six hour drive. <laughs> just relax and watch this horribly depressing movie. <laughs> Deer Hunter is different than uh, Deliverance. Those are different movies. I haven't seen Deliverance. Yeah. This is a, this is a word word of word of note to you. They are different movies. So so you were out there. All right. So you were out there in Los Angeles. You were watching Vanderbilt and TCU. You have rain. Did you uh, occupy yourself in any other way when you uh, weren't able to see a game? Yeah, just hanging. I was just walking around Chinatown in Little Tokyo. Mm-hmm. The sounds nice. Sounds pleasant. Uh yeah 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 good. LA is obviously huge and not exactly easy to get around unless you want to drive a lot. Mm. So when I'm there and not doing baseball stuff, the opportunity to like get out and see stuff is like it's pretty slim. But over the last couple of years, I've you know two or three times like really made it a point to you know I checked out of the hotel on Monday morning and just left the car in the hotel lot for most of the day and just like walked around. Yeah. And try not to buy all the kaiju, the cool kaiju, like Godzilla stuff in Little Tokyo. Like these are these really neat looking Godzilla figurines are like 300 bucks a piece. You have to employ uh, some measure of self-restraint to prevent yourself from doing that. Yeah. And just walk, you know, just walk around the side streets and see like all the little farmer's market type setups that they have there. And the number of bakeries and just sweet shops in general that are selling like steamed custard buns or sweet red bean steamed buns and all sorts of different donuts and and breads like they outnumber the regular restaurants 2 to 1 in the in these areas which was a little bit surprising i guess you have written recently uh i think it's the last list you did uh you you did the um you did the top 23 prospects for the Oakland Athletics yeah and this um this uh is uh, enough to elicit some questions from me um, in the form of some people. What one of the prospects about whom you wrote was Lazaro Armenteros, I believe, uh, frequently referred to just as Lazarito. True. Yes. All those things true. Yep. Lazarito was kind of a big deal, I think, coming out of or as an as an amateur prospect. I'm trying to remember the the precise context, for, uh, the circumstances under which he was signed, but they were unique, I think, some way. Yeah, so that entire like two to three year period of talent leaving Cuba is kind of unique because the our relationship with the country was changing in a bunch of different ways in a short period of time. And then obviously with the new collective bargaining agreement coming down in anticipation of a hard slotted international system, a lot of Cuban talent was, was doing whatever it could to leave the island. So in that time, all you have to really do is look at the age of Cuban talent that has come stateside over the years. And even if you look way, way back to the Levon Hernandez, El Duque, Jose Contreras era of Cuban defection, those are like old grizzled veteran guys who came over here and then gradually they started getting younger. So we got Yoannis Cespedes in his prime and we got Puig entering his prime and then things started trending even younger as the guys like Yoan Moncada, Yadier Alvarez, those guys started coming over. And then at the very end, Lazarito, Adrian Morejon, and you know the 17 and 18 year olds coming over to the point now where there's going to be talent coming out of Cuba because baseball is such a part of their culture there and it's really all that anyone with athletic ability plays in Cuba. So there will be talent, but it's not known talent. Like, you know, the Guriel brothers were known Cuban talents for a long time before they both came over. Now it's just sort of going to come over as it develops. And Lazarito is sort of at the tail end of this, you know, wave. And there was there was controversy in both scouting opinion about him because it was there was a lot of dissent like some people really loved him and some people didn't and then there were issues with his and again i write this in the athletics list like there's no good way of describing this person but like you know his buscone his trainer his handler whatever threatened his american agent with violence with like extreme violence because there was you know (laughs) there was a disagreement about when he should sign where he should sign that sort of stuff so Uh He was... That's a different a, experience of uh, life than my own, I, I feel like. Yeah. 
so like to be a 17 year old kid and have this person who's helped you financially to do the things that are like enabling you to be of interest to major league teams and have that person threatening this other person who's also trying to help you. Like, it's just a weird situation for a 17-year-old to be in. So he came here and to the United States after he signed with Oakland for, I think it was $3 million. And his first couple months here, I went to see him a lot because the A's complex is close to the house. And he was bad. <laughs> like, I had a three on his arm. He was a 50 runner who I didn't think fit in center field. And you could see the power on contact was there, but there was just not a lot of contact. It just it looked like he'd never seen a breaking ball in his life. Which, you know, a 17-year-old Cuban kid who hasn't played live games for a long time, that's not to be unexpected. But if I'm writing what I'm seeing, it was bad. Hmm. And then over the course of his first season, he just made wonderful adjustments. Not mechanical adjustments that you can, you know, like, say, okay, well, he changed this and he changed this. Just, like, his feel for hitting professional quality pitching improved just through repetition through experience over the course of his summer he was a plus runner by the end of the summer you know scouts feel much better about him in center field now than they than they did a year ago i agree with that assessment and so now he went from being like a left field only prospect who you didn't think was going to hit to a potential center fielder with power and you know this is your classic high variance teenage outfield prospect where you know if things fall right it's one way, and if they don't, it's another, and they're just like two extreme opposites. You know, the left fielder who can't hit and the center fielder who does everything, those are two totally different players. But when someone is 17, 18 years old, there's a chance that, you know, things might develop in a way that for someone like Lazarito, it could be either way. And that's a pretty extreme, extreme range of outcomes. He was sought after as an amateur. True, Lazarito? He was well yeah. sought after. Right, but there wasn't like Moncada where everyone was like, yes, please, I'd be like someone like this in the system. There were differing right. opinions. Okay, and then as you noted as you noted in your A's list, he was a talented mess, or he, he looked like a mess when he first came over. Right. I'm curious, like, what is the, what is the most for you? And maybe in part this applies to Kevin Maiton, who I think signed during the same international period. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and was, was also highly sought after. And perhaps is, uh, and then of course, he was part of the uh, what I think is known as the Braves kerfuffle, <laughs> officially, and uh, has what I think he's he, uh, he's now a, uh, an angel, isn't he? Yep, that's right. Okay. Oh, that's right. I get to see him this week. <laughs> what is the most you could imagine signing uh, future value grades? What's the biggest drop you could you could fathom for a prospect of that age? Right. Like you, you see a guy as an amateur maybe, or yeah, or you have a sense of a guy as an amateur and then he comes stateside, like say two years later, what's the most in theory that his grade could have dropped? You obviously have learned things, but you also have quite a bit of time ahead of you as well. In a, the most that anyone has fallen in a year Mm -hmm. has been like a full future value grade. Okay. So with my time, it was, I went from like a 55 to, we went with a 50, but, and I think Mickey Moniak will probably have been a, a 55 down to a 45. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mickey Moniak. Yeah. I was wondering when, cause you had uh, invoked his name in the discussion of um, yeah. Mick Madrigal. And you also mentioned Corey Ray as two comps necessarily in how they play, but in terms of the, the yeah, overall talent. Yeah. The guy who had the most immediate and precipitous decline <laughs> In my view was Hector Oliveira, who was not like a young guy, mm-hmm. but like was so clearly bad immediately when I saw him that I was just like, this this guy's not any good. I do agree that the age, it's almost like if a guy is 27 and looks terrible, like that it's more, I'm more likely to just destroy him in my report than a 17 or 18 year old. And it has nothing to do with me like being nice to the 17 or 18 year old kid. It's just that there's just more time for them to fix things. So, yeah, I agree with you that I probably look at guys who are disappointing on the field differently depending on their age, and I'm probably more forgiving of the ones who are younger. The Oliver's situation is strange. He sucked. He was. It was so clear immediately <laughs> that he was terrible that I was. Just, I have no idea why he was. I still to this day just don't understand what about him was interesting. I mean, I know that he was built like an NFL fullback and there was monster power on contact, but... The first time I saw him, a Reds prospect named Andrew Jordan, who was 17 at the time, was like 88, 92, 
with a 50 breaking ball and change up and like knew how to use it for a 17 year old, like just carved him to pieces on the backfield at Camelback Ranch. And I was, it was immediately a red flag. Like this guy is just not good. You got to give these Cubans time to develop a field to hit again after, like I said, with Lazarito, like they haven't played games for, for a long time. But like that, this 17 year old with a mediocre fastball was goofing Hector Oliveira was a huge red flag. And then every time I saw him after that, it was just, there was no, no noticeable improvement. He was just terrible. Hmm. And that's strange. That's strange that, it, I mean, cause it, you actually are, you're talking about a guy who was 30, not someone who was 16 or 17. So you would think that the evaluation would be less volatile. I just think using, I don't like using the value that the international guys signed for as a proxy for their talent, especially during that era where like the Dodgers are just throwing money around because they had it and were just casting as wide a net as was financially feasible for them at the time. You know, there might have been other stuff going on too. But like, yeah, I just think that the Dodgers had money to throw around and were just taking chances because they could afford to. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he was a particularly good prospect. The other player about whom I want to ask is A.G. Puck. He is the top-ranked prospect uh, in the yeah. Oakland A's system according to... Yeah, uh, let's do this because... I was, I'm working on the Marlins list right now, and in talking to people about it, there's, I think I've mentioned this to you before, like some of the guys that I have slash the industry has been light on, or players that have had a market improvement in a short period of time, are guys who at some point are like bad bodied or soft bodied and fix it. And oh, okay. Yeah. So like Puck. Yeah. Puck is the top guy in the, in the A system. And a year and a half ago at Florida, he was a bad-bodied, unathletic, inconsistent command lefty who's had back problems. And, you know, like, there were issues. It seems so obvious now to look back and be like, oh, the Phillies should have taken this guy 1-1 in that draft. But at the time, there were, like, a lot of good reasons to have not. Mm -hmm. And, like, Steven Strasburg was chubby and got in better shape and then became Steven Strasburg and Bo Bichette was soft bodied when I saw him as a high schooler and now is obviously a stud. Forrest Whitley lost a bunch of weight during the winter before his senior year of high school and then blew up. So like the, and the list of guys who have done this is long. And I finally talked to someone who had a good term for this thing, which I think is almost like, I don't want to say market inefficiency, but like you could say it is. And he called it reverse projection. Where say it's one like more time. Reverse projection. Okay. So like if a guy, if you think you can improve, we talk about projection a lot as like these skinny 6'3", 170 pound high school pitchers or whatever, where there's room on the frame. And so as they age, you want to project onto their fastball velocity, et cetera, et cetera, or their power or whatever. But there is also this entire class of player where it's like they're heavy or not in professional athlete shape or however you want to phrase it, where if you think that the makeup is good and that you can fix that and improve their conditioning, that you should also project on their, on, you know, whatever their skills in that way too. So it is like they are physically mature, but we should still be projecting on them physically because you can fix what's not good about them physically, even if it's, you know... In this case, it's reverse projection. And I, I think it, just, it was a good term for that. So you're looking for essentially uh, guys who were soft, but whose bodies possessed the potential to essentially tighten up in a productive way. Yeah, it seems it's intuitive, right? Like if you're a professional athlete, your body is your money in a lot of ways. And there are some guys who, you know, David Wells or Kurt Schilling or Bartolo Colon or whatever, who make it work even though they're they look heavy. But just in general... Like, it is good to be in good physical shape if you're, you know, a professional athlete. (laughs) So if you're not but are willing to fix it, you know, we should be projecting on some of that stuff. So it it has sort of changed. Like, the guys that I've missed on, because I I wasn't a huge puck. Like, you can go look at my draft rankings from two drafts ago and puck is like ninth or whatever. And, you know, when I was at ESPN and Bo Bichette was draft eligible, like, I was just not... (laughs) Keith and I did not agree on Boba Shad. <laughs> Keith saw him as one of the best prospects at an event that he saw late. And I saw Bo a bunch of times, like in January through July of that year, and like just did not think he was any good. So like the guys that I've missed on have informed this specific type of like, oh, if, if 
this thing that used to be an issue for me maybe is not only not an issue, but also might be a positive as long as I'm assuming that they're going to fix this one issue, which is probably more fixable than like if you don't have a good curveball. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do know what you mean here. And I think it's a, it's a compelling point you're making here. What do you think about that? What do you think about me bringing it back to you? I think that, I don't know. I could just say all the things I just said again. I'm looking at the Angels minor league schedule now because he just reminded me that like I could go see Kevin Maiton this week. You should go see Kevin Maiton. You know what? What we should do? One of the things we should do here on the is to stop recording. Okay. Because uh, I have childcare responsibilities and also got to edit. Got to edit a couple pieces. Cool. Hopefully, one of those will be the Marlins list soon. How long that Marlins list? <laughs> how long? How is that? long that how, Marlins list? How long that Marlins list? How long that Marlins list, Eric? Uh, hold on. I'll pull it up right now. Longer than, much longer than last year's. It'll probably be the one with the biggest gap from last year to this year because of all the guys they've acquired by selling away their good big leaguers. That's an interesting development. It's got like 55 names and probably, yeah, it's going to have probably like 30, 30 guys who are 40s. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey. It's not sustainable. We'll have to change it all. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Real pleasure, Eric Longening. Yeah, I like you too, Carson. Now allow me to say that you have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. Thanks. And, yeah, all right. Uh, so, what, I already said thank you. I said thank you. So, yes. Thank you. Uh, I will say that is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenagan. I am Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Turbo Alpin, do you want to brass? I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.